You are listening to audio from the Coram Deo Academy of Dallas Fall Lecture Series. In this lecture, we discuss a Christian understanding of virtue and what that understanding might have to say about our use of social media. If you're interested in hearing more about the intersection between classical education and Christian formation, we invite you to subscribe to this podcast. About once a month, we will release short episodes about one aspect of classical Christian education and how that relates to Christian formation. Each episode will include tangible ideas for applying that episode's topic to your own context, whether you are formally involved in classical education or not. Really briefly look at three different ways that different philosophers have tried to describe ethics, tried to describe morality, um, before we get into virtue. And we'll start with perhaps the most popular approach today, but it's actually the one that garners the least amount of philosophical support um, and really has been the least thought through, just historically speaking, um, but yet is the most popular. This is often the case in pop culture. But this whole notion of what is right is being true to yourself. So the sense of self-fulfillment, the fancier word would be existentialism. But if you're talking about how do I know what to do in a given moment, self-fulfillment, existentialism would say your main task is to be true to who you are. There are no external systems of rules. Don't calculate the consequences. Don't try to live up to somebody else's standards. uh, standards. Be true to yourself. Um, This would be the... Um, we watch Disney and talk through these things while we watch Disney, but this would kind of be like the Disney philosophy for how to approach ethics. Like the answer is being most true to who you are, ethic for us to approach. Um, Some of the great villains of history were very true to themselves um, and in doing that did immense damage to others. So that's an, an easier one for us to say, let's set that one to the side. That's not gonna be an option for how we approach training people and ourselves included to make ethical decisions. It has to go beyond what do I think I should do? What do I feel I should do in a given moment? So when you, when you leave, that leaves us really with a, a couple different big categories. One would be to approach ethics through rules. Um, this was often called the deontological approach. That you're, you're, our task is to discover what are the rules that govern things and then how do we apply those rules to a given situation? So the morality of an action should be based on whether or not that action is obeying or disobeying a rule. This is one that that has a lot to it. So rules matter. We are all part of a religion that has rules, right? We talk a lot about it's a relationship and there's grace, absolutely, but a a good chunk of our scriptures are rules. So um, rules in and of themselves are going to be good, but let's just amongst ourselves think about what are some disadvantages to the rules or where might a, an entire ethical system built on rules fall short? Okay, so we, the Old Testament had all the rules and if we're reading the narrative along with the rules, we find out they didn't work. So the rules themselves aren't enforcing anything. So, okay, how, how else? How else might rules as a system fall short? Yes. Or into a gray area where the rules really weren't uh, specific, then you have to sort of fall back on principles. Absolutely. 
right? So rules just cannot address everything. We were camp counselors at Sky Ranch for a couple summers during college, and I remember one day, one afternoon was dedicated to listing all the rules for counselors, and it was a super long list. It makes you, it makes you think of the Old Testament. Like, there's kind of 10 rules, but then there are 400 rules, and a lot of those are just giving you detailed ways that you could break the 10. And so we're sitting in this camp meeting, and one of them was campers and counselors are not allowed to, to pee off of the top balcony onto the, onto the floor. And they're reading these rules, and as they're reading these rules, you realize what has happened. These rules came from situations that were not addressed by previous rules that somebody tried to then argue and say, how are you kicking me out as a counselor? There was not a rule against X, right? So rules can sometimes just, you need them, they're important, they're, you, the principle behind them is going to be huge. But yeah, they don't cover everything. And then we run into perhaps one of the greatest ones that we saw in the 20th century. What if the rules themselves are morally wrong? So, I mean, what, what rules? What if you are the soldier following the orders? I mean, that, now you're caught in this in-between of the, the rule for you is, is going to be morally wrong. So rules are important. They're good. Um, but they might not be that overarching, overarching system that we're, that we're looking for. So the next great approach has been consequence calculations. So this has been called, there's a variance of it, utilitarianism or consequentialism. Um, the best action is not the one that kind of fits in the rule because of all the problems we just realized with rules. But the best action, if we're going with the utilitarianism version, would be the action that produces the greatest amount of good for the most amount of people. So this, this, would be, this would be an approach that would just say an action is right or wrong based on the results that it produces. So if you're doing this at a national level, then you want to make laws based on providing the most amount of good for the greatest number of people. If you're doing it on an individual level, you want to say those things to your spouse that produces the most amount of good for both of you, perhaps, right? So it's, it's another very good approach. Um, what might be some hiccups with that, or where might that fall short? That instead of a list of rules, what, instead what you're going with is what is the kind of calculating the consequences here? Okay. Yeah, so you, you might hit something that benefits 75%, but you're maybe at the expense of the 25%. Okay. What else? And we are picking apart systems put together by people much smarter than all of us. So we are, we are realizing that too. For sure. So who... For that 25%, it's certainly not good. But in it, you know, bigger than that, whose definition, right? So even in the ancient world, when they talked about um, this notion of happiness, it was much, it's much deeper than our own. But according to whom, right? And so there's all of these calculations. Uh, the law of unintended consequences. Um, you can make one decision that is good for the vast majority of people in this generation, what does it do to the next generation or the next generation? Or something that's good for the, the majority of the population of this city might actually be harming the entire population of that city. So, you know, we, and, and again, this is another one. You know, all of us thinking of parenting younger children, I'm, I, we're not saying go home and don't have rules because that's, oh my goodness. Um, we have a little, so a little monster, uh, Rowan right now. He just like sneaks out in the middle of the night and He's emptied how many spice containers now in, in our kitchen? And so it's been, right. 
So we need the rules. What we want him to get to is consequence calculation. We want him to be in that moment and think through what are the consequences of this. This is a greater number of goods. So I would, I would just love if he upgraded perhaps to, to that approach. <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah, yeah, maybe not, maybe not. As long as he can't argue with me about it yet. Um, and then perhaps what, one of the difficulties here is what do you do in those sudden moments where a decision needs to make, be made quickly in a very high-pressure environment? Um, do you have time to look for the rule book and find that exact situation? Do you have time to calculate who will this affect in this circle, then this circle, then this circle? Um, is there an ethical system that prepares you for moments like that? And if you paid attention to the title or what I said at the beginning, I'll probably be, be saying that virtue would be that system. So all of, these, uh, all of these deal with rules and think that rules are important. It's really important to think about the consequences of an action and then virtues, qualities, strengths, moral muscle matter. All three of these systems would say that. What would make virtue unique here in a sense and a virtue ethics, it really puts the emphasis on developing this moral intuition, um, developing this moral muscle that we, so that we can do what is right without having to calculate the consequences, without having to consult a, a rule book of sorts. So all, all of these systems say something about rules and say there's a valid place for rules, there's something about calculating consequences, and there's something about being the right type of person, virtue. But virtue ethics is going to say that is the central. Um, so virtue in this sense in, a, in an ethical sense, is not just another word for goodness. It's used in that way, and it's good. We think of a virtue versus a vice. So it's something good that we can do versus something bad that we can do. Um, it's not just a list of, of character traits. We do call those things the virtues, and they're important. But it's really an, an approach to ethics that is focused on becoming the right sort of person that would then do the right thing in any number of situations. So the shift is less from the moral act itself. It's onto becoming the right sort of person that would do the right thing. And this is really the, the, the origin of a lot of this, in the ancient world at least, would be Aristotle. Um, and he, he would be the one that would first start to talk about these. I think it would help to tell a couple different stories. Um, I heard these in a fascinating lecture. I didn't include it on the, I, I meant to, on the resources on the back of that. There's a lecture that N.T. Wright gave about a decade ago called Learning the Language of Life. Learning the Language of Life. And if you just Google that, you can hear the audio or, or see the video of him giving it. Um, and he tells these two stories back to back. He's the first person I've heard to kind of put these stories together to illustrate two things. One, what we mean when we say virtue. And two, how... Um, how opposed to virtue is our current culture? That's kind of, that's kind of his story. So here are those two stories. You, you might have heard these two stories. On Thursday, January 15th, a miracle took place in New York, or some people say. Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia, headed for Charlotte, North Carolina, only to run into a flock of geese minutes later. The damage to the engines was extensive, and it soon became clear that an emergency landing on the Hudson River was the safest course of action. In a matter of minutes, a number of critical maneuvers needed to happen in order to avoid a disaster. The captain and the co-pilot had to shut down the engines, set the right speed so that the plane could glide as long as possible without power. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed, 
but then get it back up again before hitting the water. They had to disconnect the autopilot, override the flight management system, and activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves to make the plane waterproof. Perhaps most importantly of all, they had to glide the plane towards a sharp left-hand turn so that they could land the plane facing south, going with the current of the river, not against it. Then they had to level the plane from the tilt of the turn so that on landing it would be exactly level. This is a small list of some of what happened in the span of just a few minutes. And as you all know, everyone survived the landing. Newspaper headlines across the world described this event as a Hudson River miracle. So if we're taking this situation and running it through our ethical systems, what would have happened if the pilots in that moment tried to just be true to themselves? Their, their inner self, in that moment, my fear, we have a, a fun mutual friend with Rebecca that we were just talking about, who when he gets tense or nervous or afraid, he wants to fall asleep where he is, right? So just like this, like that's his comfort place is, is to fall asleep. So if they were into this existential approach of being really true to themselves, maybe they eject and get out. I don't think commercial planes eject, but we'll run with it, um, right? If they let their fear, that we know that's not going to work. If they had to look, open up a big rule book that you know, kind of a choose your own adventure. So if your engines fail, turn to page 27. And if you're over a river, turn to page 40. Like by the time they would just figure out what to do, we'd be in trouble. Um, if, they, if they spent too much time thinking about the various consequences to these different actions. Um, again, all of the things we just described took place in, in several minutes. Not, not 10, 15, 20, 30, but we're talking a few minutes these things had to happen. Um, what these pilots had going for them was the training that it takes to be a pilot, which is doing the same thing over thousands and thousands and thousands of times until it becomes second nature. And, and on the thousand and first time when it really mattered, they knew what they were doing. Uh, N.T. Wright makes a really fascinating point here that really is just a side note, but um, calling this event a miracle... On one hand, we might want to say, yes, it's great. Like, let's, let's recognize that God is still very actively involved in this world, that he's very hands-on. But part of that is because our culture really just values a spontaneity. And this, this surprise performance out of nowhere, instead of recognizing that really what made that plane land was the hours and decades, even at this point, of training of these pilots to build up these virtues that in this moment... Um, helped in a way that no other system would. And then this, the second story that I think maybe highlights this even more uh, is that Gary Players, a South African golfer, after a particularly wonderful round, was asked by a reporter if he was feeling extra lucky that day because a lot of his shots went in. And his response is probably one of my favorite sports interview response ever. When he said, yes, and I've noticed the more I practice, the luckier I seem to get, right? <laughs> like it's, I mean, like... What we want is just this amazing, out-of-nowhere, great performance that can't be explained. And, and, and really, Gary had, had practiced golf a handful of times in his life, right? So our, our culture values um, spontaneity sometimes, or, or kind of, do we just want this flash of brilliance with a touch of divine intervention, when really what we had in both of these cases were decades of training that led to the embodiment of habits that kicked in when the moment was, was right and when it was most needed. Um, virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small decisions that by themselves kind of go against our natural inclinations, 
And they've done them enough that it's become ingrained in who they are so that on that thousand and first time, when it really counts, they do, they do the right action. Um, this is something that the Christian church from the very beginning has, has seen as a, a wonderful explanation for humanity. It, it matches up in, in a lot of really neat ways. Um, you have this idea that at birth, we're not going to be equipped with these virtues, Right? So the ancient Greeks thought that you were born and you were not able, you were not, um, you didn't have charity, you didn't have fortitude or prudence or any of these. These were things that had to be developed. And so the Christian concept of original sin um, and that we're born in a broken state, not a, not a right state with God, um, and that the, the, grace, the grace given to us in our salvation is also given to us to work through and, and be sanctified. Um, really the biggest overlap I think, between this notion of virtue and the Christian faith is that of all the ethical systems, virtue is the one that focuses on being the right person. It says the, the ideal ethic is a person. And we have a Christian faith that would very easily be able to say it. the ideal ethic is the person, Jesus Christ. And so it's this really, um, when the early Christians were, were ingrained into this talk of virtue, they, they ran with it pretty quickly. Um, Thomas Aquinas took, this is now not early, but now medieval Christian, but just as an example, Thomas Aquinas took this um, kind of the four cardinal virtues of Aristotle and Christianized them in a sense and described how, um, how they would work in a world that was both fallen and infused by grace. Um, in, in a, this, is, this is kind of separate, but it reminded me of something Augustine said. The prayer at our church this past Sunday was something along the lines of... Um, God, you both precede and follow us with grace. Now give us the strength to, to, to live according to your will. Was, along those lines, there's this notion of it's, this is not a replacement for grace. Um, grace came before. Grace will come after. Grace comes in this moment of working through this sanctification. Um, but So the Christian church said, look, there, here are the four cardinal virtues that Aristotle defined. Um, we'll list those very quickly before we actually do move on to social media, I promise. Um, and, then, and then what we recognize, there's more in Scripture. And so there's, there's debate, are there four, are there seven, are there 15? There's all, there's all these virtues. And you have the four cardinal virtues and then really the three, what became known as the theological virtues that are kind of the pinnacle of this mountain of faith, hope, and love. And of course, Paul, coming from Paul's passage there in 1 Corinthians, um, that's, what I, that's how I say it when I'm not sure if it's first or second, but I'm pretty sure it's first. Um, uh, so brief overview of those four cardinal virtues and then, and then really get into the social media. Um, if nothing else, the premise right now would be virtue ethics as a system probably does the best job explaining both the condition we find ourselves in and the path towards sanctification. Um, and those four cardinal virtues, if you're thinking of two Latin words are going to help us here, the Latin word for virtue is, is really also just the word for strength. So when we're talking about virtues, think of those as moral muscles. Um, it is, they are not just character traits as much as you would think of the strength required, physical strength required for you to lift something or accomplish a specific task. Apply that to our moral lives. You and I can have strong moral muscles in some area and very weak moral muscles in other areas. The virtues are these moral muscles. Um, We'll list them. I think I give you the list on the back. So 
prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. These have been called the four cardinal virtues. Here's our second good Latin word. The, the word that cardinal is, is based on is the word for hinge. So if you're just picturing a door, uh, that's a sliding door. How, how unfortunate. Um, you're picturing a door like these are the four virtues upon which all other virtues are built and, and flow out of. So prudence would be right reason applied to practice. So thinking rightly and then putting that into practice. This is the think first, but also think rightly and then act. Um, this is prudence. Justice, the determination to give every person their rightful due. The, the muscle, the reflex inside of us to be concerned about the 25% when the 75% are doing okay, that's this justice muscle. And if exercised, it's there and we can use it. If not used very often, it gets weaker. Uh, it, it atrophies like any other muscle would as well. Fortitude, remaining steady in our will in the face of obstacles and fear. It's the restraint of fear so that we can act. When we are fearful, fortitude means you're doing the right thing regardless of that fear. Um, this is Fortitude is one of the, there are some, some churches that look at the list of seven gifts of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah, I think it's 11, um, early on in Isaiah 11, and fortitude is one of those. So it's kind of one of these neat uh, overlaps in, in the ancient world. Um, fear is, a, is an overwhelmingly universal human experience and one of our primary motivators for not acting rightly. Fear of speaking up when we should speak up, fear of remaining silent when we should remain silent, um, stops us from doing these things. So you have this fortitude, which is restraining fear so that we can act. And then I love the beautiful contrast, contrast between that and temperance, which is actually restraining our desires and passions so that we act appropriately, or in some cases, so we don't act. So when our, when our wrong desires and wrong passions are pulling us, temperance is that moral muscle to not act or to change the, change the direction of our, of our acting. Um, so one, th this would be a, a side topic for later, um, but in a, in a lot of ways, the, the great disciplines of the Christian church are exercises for building up these four cardinal virtues. It's a really beautiful, if you just read the New Testament looking for what are our great practices, our reading scripture, meditating, being silent, Fasting. I mean, fasting is, it would be a great one to, to talk about in general, but fasting as building up this temperance. If you can say no to a burger when you're really hungry, you're not just skipping the calories, you're actually exercising a no muscle that is really, really important. It doesn't matter as much when it's the burger, but that same moral muscle, the more you can say no to things, more, more to imp no to impulses than when you really need to say no. Uh, the stronger that is, the better. So again, all of these, if we're looking and trying to be prudent people that can think rightly and then act, um, what better way to do that than just soaking ourselves in Scripture to where our, our imagination is filled. We see something happen and it enters us into a, a narrative from the Old Testament um, or a command from the New. So these, th that would be a whole, other, whole other, other fun talk of the Christian disciplines Really, as if you're looking for exercise, if I want to get stronger, push-ups is going to be a good exercise. If you want to be, I, I'm told. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read about it once. Um, if I'm looking for fortitude, there are exercises for it. There are spiritual disciplines for that. So, um, if if that's, I think that's enough. That's a base for us here. 
Think of the virtues as the moral muscles that are either strengthened or given to atrophy on a daily basis. Um, it's not something that we can just focus on one day a week and, and strengthen it and then not use it six days a week. These are things that on a daily basis we are either getting stronger or we're getting weaker. Um, and there are things we can do in our lives to increase that strength and there, there are things, there are habits we can have that actually decrease that. Thousands of small daily decisions become these ingrained habits which make up who, who we are in any given moment. So what does any of this have to do with social media? Right. I think the, the angle on social media that I'd like for us to just begin a, a bit of a discussion about is not necessarily just the very clear negative aspects of it. We'll list those off in a minute. Those are there. But more of the fact that of those thousands of decisions that we make in a given day, the introduction of social media and a variety of different networks and the ability for us to have it on our phones and on our watches and everywhere we are presents us with hundreds of encounters, hundreds of opportunities a day to either strengthen a moral muscle or to, to let, it, let it weaken a bit. So there are obvious ones just to rattle through some. Um, obvious ways that social media can damage us as humans um, would be study after study that's finding a, a very direct link between teenage social media use and depression and even suicide. Uh, this is just, it's not a, it started as this novel, novel study or two about a decade ago and it has just been confirmed and confirmed and confirmed um, that in, in the teenage years to have access to seeing what anyone else in the world wants to portray as their true selves is absolutely making us more depressed, more worried about how we compare. Um, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's the sort of thing that if the side effects of that were in our drinking water, we'd be up in arms. I mean, we'd be getting at our city officials, we'd be doing just about everything. Um, so that's gonna be a big one. Discontentment by comparison Right? So just the fact that if you're scrolling and you see three people who have that degree that you want or that job that you want or that kitchen that you want, all of a sudden in your world in that moment, everyone else does have something that you don't have. Right? So we, we zoom in so much and, and it's just in that world we, we do have that. Um, the, the Ten Commandments have always been fascinating to me. And there's been a couple that I've always thought, how in the world did they make it on the list? Like I think they're good. But what, how did this make the top ten? The honor your father and mother was always one of those until I became a father. And then, and then I got it real quickly. The do not covet. I mean, the fact that you just are, are ending this thing on a bang of, of don't covet. Um, I've, I've just always thought, ah, well, jealousy is just jealousy. Like when you're a kid, you're like, yeah, you always want other people's things. And until you, until you just see, my goodness, that will eat away at you, not just internally, but in relationships. So it's... Social media probably doesn't help our do not covet. Um, it's a time killer. It leads to bad posture. Um, all, all of these things. So mild, you know, or, or varying degrees of how bad it is. But those are kind of some of the big ones. I want to hear your thoughts on those. Things that you've noticed in your own life or in the lives of your children. And then uh, before we close, I do just want to share one that I, I read about in a fascinating book. Um, that has really blown my mind a little bit. And it's kind of this, this under, like, more secret um, why, it's, why it's actually making us worse people 
and we don't even realize it sort of deal. But before we start, I, I like doing this in this group. It's an added bonus that we have the youngins with us today. Um, but the one of the, the first or second recommended resource I told you, or I told you about Sherry, what's her name? Sherry Turkle. Sherry Turkle. Uh, MIT professor. Uh, she has a great, um, couple of great TED Talks, but she's also written for a long time. Her, her first big book that kind of made, made a splash was called Alone Together. And it was a study of, of teenage use of phones in public settings. And just kind of this notion that we're, we're all we're surrounded by more people than at any point in human history, and we're all alone. Um, so that, that's a great one. Um, this one here, Reclaiming Conversation, uh, I was struck by how much of the book she did this as studies with college students on their use of cell phones and how often they use it and did you have any rules about it growing up and over it was the most convicting book that you'll read uh, this week I, mean, I don't know how much you read some of you guys read a lot um, overwhelmingly these college students were saying our parents tried and they gave us really good rules but then mom was always on her phone under the table as if we couldn't see her at dinner and I mean all, almost all of them it was this dissidence between you're telling me I can't be on my phone and it's bad for me and that you are. And I'm just like reading this as a parent. You know, like, well, they can't tell when I'm doing this. Can't? I mean, they, they can absolutely tell. I mean, how soon our kids, like, were drawn towards the idea of a phone was, was super convicting as well. So um, part of the reason that, I, that this is where I'd like to talk about is because really if it's us first. We, we model this well before we need to expect our students to, and we really need our students to. So the first book on that list is a book I was really excited about, uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And the guy that wrote it is a character. I mean, if you go home and watch interviews with him on YouTube, he's, I mean, big old guy, big dreads, like he's, so if you can say like this person helped found the internet, He's on that list. So it wasn't just one person. It's not just Al Gore sitting there. But, it, but he's one of these people. So he developed the technology that led to the first chat room. He was very much ingrained in all of this. And he has been one of the biggest, I mean, whistleblowers might be, might be a right term for this, to really one thing that he highlights early on, that the first really half of that book is about the feed itself and how it's developed. And, and I... I I think what I put down, I don't know if I put it on the sheet. I talked about Socrates on the sheet. Okay, yeah, yeah. So the social feed is the unexamined life that Socrates warned us about. So um, an unexamined life is not worth living. One of the great, just if you need a Greek philosophy quote, run with that one. That's a good one, Socrates. Just that, that all of life, life is too important in our context. God is too important. Others are too important to do things just to do them without examining them. So... The way that these feeds developed, as best that I can interpret what this guy is saying, and I, we remember this from early on. So early on in all of these social accounts, if you followed five people, just for sake of analogy, your feed, what you saw when you logged in, was a chronological list of things that those five people shared. And that was it. So you saw the things that your five people shared. Um, very quickly, Facebook was the first to do it. Twitter then did it, others did it. Very quickly, these companies realized there were a couple problems with that. One is it's incredibly boring really quickly because when your five people are done saying things, you have no other reason to go back to that app. You could refresh it to see if they've said something else, but it's too boring to have what we just call a chronological feed. The second thing is it doesn't make any money 
you're not paying Facebook for this, you're, you're not getting any money. So the two things that were introduced by Facebook and then now everyone else are the feed where it's not chronological, but they decide what gets shown first and second and third or gets shown at all, and advertisements. And the way these two work together has turned into a, a really, really animal, it depends on who you ask. This guy, Jaron, um, is it Jaron? He, he thinks that, in his words, Silicon Valley is just really, really stupid and, and did this on accident. Others, former people at Facebook and former people at Google, say no, it is actually evil. So the, the debate is it's either incredibly stupid and harming us because of it, or it's evil and harming us because of that. But essentially what, what eventually happened was they said, let's not just show you the, your five friends and what they post in the order, but let's put at the top the things that maybe your friend posted that other people commented on. So like what got a lot of attention, let's show you that first because it's probably going to interest you more and, and keep you engaged. And if you think of, if I'm just going to read through a list, imagine now you're following 100 people, and what you see more than anything else are the most engaged with photos or, or updates. Um, I'm going to read a list of the virtues again, and just from what you know about social media, how many of these make the top list? So are, are the top tweets going to be prudent, full of justice, full of fortitude, and full of temperance? Like what, what winds up rising to the top is a lot of the worst in all of us. So that someone can say something incredibly controversial, and it's going to get a lot of uh, equally con controversial comments. So one thing that because these companies want us to log in more frequently, they, they bring those things to the forefront. So that's, that's one thing that's, that's getting us. The next would just be the, the advertisement. And part of it is we're like, hey, these are free products, and so they, they use these advertisements. But companies wanted to offer more and more views and more and more important views. So if you, if you just view an ad and move on, it doesn't do a lot for, for the company. If you click it or you engage with it, you do it. So they started writing these programs that they didn't quite understand how they worked, but they call it machine learning, which as I've looked into is kind of code for we don't know what it's doing. Like we're programming these things to adapt, so they, they write a code that is taught to adapt on its own, and they don't quite know where it's going with it. And so when we scroll, it's not just what you see that they're tracking, but how long you scroll on something. It, you, don't, you don't have to click on anything. So what the, the worst of this that came out a lot pre and post election was just this concept of there are some, there's a, a level of advertising that you can pay Facebook that will give this prioritized placement. So it will learn your preference. Do you click product advertisements more after seeing a happy photo of a friend or a sad photo of a friend? And, and the machine is known to detect these click things and it's not, it, it gives preference to your quickest instinct even. So it's like if you, if you see a sad photo and right away click, it likes that more because that's your gut, that's kind of your, your true self. There, I mean, political advertisements, all based on, on, on this, like show the, show the bad news, like um, incredibly sad news article, a sad thing that your friend posted, and, and how do we know it's sad? Well, because they gave us these sweet little buttons where we can make it a tear instead of a thumbs up or a, or a thumbs down. And, and so all, all of this, in his mind, they, they don't even quite understand how all these machines are learning and where they're going. So he, if you're interested in that at all, those first three or four chapters of that book are, are really all about it and was one of the biggest ones probably for me, one of the, one of the more recent bigger eye-openers of just 
it's it it would be bad enough for me and distracting enough for me if it was just the people I chose to follow. Like I, I probably told them. I told students a lot at one point. Like be really careful who you follow. Um, you are inviting someone into your room late at night to whisper things in your ear that you'll probably eventually believe to be true. Right? Because as you're scrolling there, this is what this is what you're doing. Whisper these things to me, and if they do it enough, you're going to believe them. Well, now it's like even worse than that because you're you're inviting who Facebook says should be in your bedroom. They're whispering things to you or friends. And so kind of the, and like the worst of our content gets up to the top and goes. So I, it was this last, um, that was really like my, my secret card if you guys were all going to come back and just say, no, everything's great with social media. That was going to be, the, but I knew you were going to do that. But, <laughs> but I just, it's, it's one, it just, it kind of rocked my world a little bit in this long journey of, of trying to get, get detached um, while recognizing that there are really neat, there's a really nerdy, because this is still, a, I, I can't help but have that, that side of me, the computer background side, I still kind of plug away at some of this. And there are some interesting new approaches. So micro.blog is one of them. And part of it is, if you, ever, if you go check it out, one, it's incredibly hard to sign up for. You have to either like host your own website or you can pay them some. To, so you have to pay. So there's a bar of entry to where you, it's not like Twitter where you can just open it up and create a new account and you're in. So that might be part of why it hasn't become this just really insipid place to, to be. But one of the things that they did is they've said, let's learn from some of these mistakes and let's change it. So it's a, it's a social media site that's trying to do things like there are no follower counts. You have no idea how many people follow you. There's not a like button, there's not a share button. or if it, So you can, I mean, the most famous person in the world could say something and you could say something and there's no visible sign to anyone, even those own people that anyone engages with it. And so it's a really, I mean, so it, it's these glimmers of, I mean, it won't take off because it's really hard to set up and no one, nobody wants that, right? But it's just these glimmers of, wait, I mean, and it's a lot of people that, that helped create the first monster that now they realized and are trying to do. So there, I really, um, like absolutely anything, what a, what a, any tool from fire to clay. I mean, we have, as humans have, mastered for good and have mastered for ultimate destruction. And so this is, this is one of those that I, I get the sense we're still in the mastering it for ultimate destruction phase that hopefully it'll, it'll get better. But, but I don't know if you guys caught when <laughs> Kaylin and Ryan caught how they found out that we were doing this. It's because I pushed it to Instagram and Twitter. So <laughs> from this micro.blog account. Uh, so anyway, so what, I did at, what I did at the end was just, can I, can I borrow this real quick? What I did in the end is just where do we go from here? These are not this is not necessarily my advice, but if any of these sound initially exciting, this is the phase where we are, and this is totally playing on our emotions right now. Also, this is the second great awakening all over again, for better and for worse. Um, but this is this is the like if one of these sticks out, chew on it, sleep on it tonight, and maybe try it. Um, the book tries to get you to delete every social media account you have. Um, but one thing that, that I at least experimented with was just I just don't follow anybody on any of them. And if everyone adopted that, none of them would work. So, I mean, I'm, which maybe that's the way to, to take down the beast. But I do follow my wife on Instagram, though. That's true. I want I, I to keep seeing, keep seeing those. But that, I, I would say that was, that was one of the easiest. It felt too much to delete everything, to like just delete the accounts cold turkey. But to me, that was one where I am at least not... Feeling. I liked Twitter probably the most out of all of them, and I followed a bunch of professors and pastors and really interesting people. Um, but then I found myself being jealous, and then I found myself also like, oh, 
all these people think this thing. I always thought it another way. I wonder, I must be wrong. Like, it's, it's, it's the same thing that is happening um, to, the, to those half our age. But um, I tell students sometimes I quit for three days. It's the whole addict thing. Um, like, if the idea of quitting for a week itself is daunting, it's a, it's a great little red flag right there. Like, maybe you, maybe you really need to do it. And, and addicts also, I mean, the, one of the many things about addiction is, like, take gambling, for example. You're not necessarily just, you're definitely not addicted to, to winning. You're, you're addicted to the chance of losing and yet still winning. And the further you get into it, you want that bigger gap. You want a, a greater chance of losing and just a small chance of winning. Like, that will feed the high more than it's a 50-50. So if we're, I mean, if we're thinking of this in social media, we're... We're jealous and we're, we're, we're losing sleep over what other people have and then going back and searching it out. There's like a part of it that we actually kind of enjoy and the we is a, is a, is a real we there. I, I really do get it. So quit for a little while. Um, Freedom is probably one of my favorite current apps. Um, you can install it on phones and computers and anywhere. And you can do, if you can think it, you can do it essentially. So don't, don't let me check... Microsoft Outlook email past 5 p.m. on any device I own. And boom, it does it. So you have to be really careful when you do it because then you can't respond to work emails. Freedom. So there's a free version that lets you do some, and then there's a subscribed version that's some sort of annual fee um, that can let you do it on, on all, all the devices and define. And it can be a Monday through Friday, 5 to 8, which is our kind of one of our prime like kid windows where I'm home. Don't don't let me get on any of this. So it just kind of stops the, if we're back to the virtue or the habit building, the, a lot of it is not that we necessarily love it, but it's the, it's the thing to do for a down minute real quick. Like this Instagram post is not going to throw spaghetti at me. So I like it right now, right? So it's, it's so freedom, that freedom app moment, it's now built into iOS 12, although I just don't know. I don't, I don't know that I trust him to tell you everything you're using. But Moment was a, was a really fascinating one for us. It tells you the number of times you pick up your phone. And that was almost more scary than reading the hours that are spent on it. So time created by a mom. It was created by a woman who had just become a mom. Mm. And was, uh, had one of those sleepless babies. And so she just walked around and found herself bored. She has a whole TED Talk about this, actually. Uh, found herself in a place of boredom that then she would suggest for more creativity. And so she created moments. And so it can, if, you, if you opt into it, it compare you to the average moment user. So this is amongst those that have thought enough about this to download this app and where do you stand in there. And I think last I checked, it was something like you, your label is green if you spend less than two and a half hours on your phone. And that means you're like in the top 15% of moment users. It's yellow if you're like in the three to four hour range. And I mean, it's, and it's one of those things that I, I would have never thought. It's like, no, I would have guessed 15 minutes. All right, and then you look down, you're like, oh.